you find yourself needing to learn more about D&D. What do you do? I cast POND! Welcome to I Cast Pod, a D&D podcast about creating characters, taking chances, rolling dice, and having fun. I'm Mike, your DM and guide to all things Dungeon-esque and dragony. I'm excited about this episode, as it marks the transition to how I think the show will be going forward. I wanted to do episodes 1 and 2 as beginner episodes, and the focus going forward will still be learning and have the beginner in mind, but I wanted to create all new sections to discuss things like playable races and classes, as well as famous NPCs and characters from D&D, and loads of other good info. So let's get started. Heard any good rumours lately? On the 2nd of June, Wizards of the Coast are releasing Mythic Odysseys of Theros, a new campaign sourcebook based in the Magic the Gathering world of Theros, which adapts Greek mythology for its setting. Players will choose a supernatural gift and then go on an epic quest across the realms of mortals, gods and the five realms of the underworld. Pitting players against mighty heroes, imprisoned titans and inevitable prophecies to leave their mark as a legend. The supernatural gifts work similar to character races mechanically and will give your character a variety of traits. There will be new races available drawn from myths such as satyrs, minotaurs or leonin. There will be new subclasses available including ones for bard and paladin. New monsters will include mythic monsters whose power outstrips even legendary creatures. God weapons, which you can receive as a blessing from the god you represent, or brazenly steal them to gain previously unheard of power. From the little information released and the artwork, it looks like the campaign will be a little like playing Clash of the Titans, which, providing we're talking about the original Harryhausen version, is no bad thing. The book will release with an alternate soft-touch cover for $49.95 on June the 2nd. Hopefully by now, you should have seen the Baldur's Gate 3 gameplay livestream. Larian revealed playable races of humans, Githyanki, tieflings, halflings, elves and half-elves, drow and half-drow, dwarves and more. Some of the races showed sub-races too, such as hill dwarf, high-elf, lightfoot halfling or Asmodeus tiefling. All the races shown could be played as either male or female, and I'm assuming with no advantages or penalties for either. There were also backgrounds like Noble, Charlatan, Criminal or Entertainer shown. Classes that were revealed were Wizard, Cleric, Fighter, Ranger, Rogue or Warlock, with more coming after early access. Larian also showed off some of the NPCs and the opening game cinematic which showed Dragon Riders fighting with the Illithid Nautilus ship. And all I can say about that is, I hope the writers of the upcoming movie watched it and took notes. It also showed an illithid ship collecting people as it caused destruction in the city of Yartar, which sits just east of Tribor and the Sword Coast. The illithid interacts with a Githyanki female, inserting a tadpole into her eye, which allows mind-melding in the game proper, but will also eventually consume characters from the inside and turn them into mind-flayers. 
Baldur's Gate 3 looks amazing and has been announced for PC and Google Stadia so far. I'm very excited for this and will probably order whatever deluxe version they release, but will have to buy a PC to play it as it's unlikely it will appear on current generation consoles. And that's the news for this episode. Next up is a new section for discussing playable races, called... Off to the Races! The first race we're going to discuss in this section is... Dragonborn! Considered one of the most exotic races in the player's handbook, Dragonborn have draconic ancestry, although their origins are shrouded in mystery. One story says Io, the dragon god, fused astral spirits with the fury of the elements. The greater spirits became dragons, and the lesser, the dragonborn. Another version has dragons already existing when Io was split in two by a primordial called Eric Hus, the king of terror, during the Dawn War. The two halves became the dragon gods Bahamut and Tiamat, and the blood that splattered the ground became the dragonborn. A third tale has Io creating the Dragonborn before all other humanoid races, shaping their perfection and firing them with his breath. And only creating the dragons later, at the start of the Dawn War, to use as weapons in the war. The fact that they were created by Io, and not Bahamut or Tiamat, means that every Dragonborn has a choice to make in their own personal morality of which path to follow. Although the latter myth sees Dragonborn as being created before the dragons, on their homeworld of Abir, they serve as a slave race to the dragons. During the Spell Plague, the two worlds intersected, and the Dragonborn nation of Timanchabar displaced the nation of Untha, becoming Timantha, and seeking to integrate with Faerun, and for a time, established itself as a nation of honour, until the events of the Sundering reverted Untha back to Faerun leaving many Dragonborn without a nation and scrabbling to survive. Dragonborn average around 6 foot 2 to 6 foot 8 in height and average around 300 pounds in weight. They have larger and stronger bones than humans but with a less dense core to the bone. They have breath weapons determined by their draconic ancestry from a list of fire, cold, acid, lightning and poison. They are also granted a damage immunity to the same type. They have taloned digits with three fingers and a thumb, but lack wings or a tail. Their teeth seem to replenish if one is knocked out, but this is just the other rows moving up to fill the space. Dragonborn can be quite tetchy towards those who point out that they have lost a tooth. Their colours are usually of brass or bronze heritage, and tend towards a rusty reddish brown, but can range to scarlet, gold, white, black, blue, silver, brass, bronze or copper green. They birth eggs and find other reproductive systems gross. Their young are nursed for a short period but grow quickly, walking only hours after hatching and reaching the size of a 10-year-old human child by the time they are three. They are considered adults at 15 and live to around 80 years. Dragonborn families are direct relations and a clan is formed of families through intermarriage, shared history or alliance. Dragonborn revere their clan above all else. Their actions reflect on their clan, and dishonourable behaviour could result in expulsion. Every Dragonborn knows their duties within the clan, 
and their honour demands that they perform to their best. If a situation arose where a dragonborn were forced to choose between family and clan, the clan's welfare would take precedence. They are given personal names at birth, but put their clan names first as a mark of honour. They are a very proud race, valuing skill and excellence, which pushes them to strive for self-improvement and self-sufficiency. They hate to fail, so recognise the need for help in difficult situations, turning to their own clan when needed. Any honour due to acts of daring, bravery or heroism is considered bestowed upon the clan first and the acting individual second. They view their code of honour and loyalty as a type of faith, and are often sceptical about religion, having been forced to worship their draconic masters in ages past. But some do worship gods. Bahamut and Tiamat can count Dragonborn among their followers. And other Dragonborn-favoured gods include Torm and Tyr, for their codes of honour and order, as well as Tempus, Kelimvor, and others. They can be viewed as monsters by lay folk, although they are likely to be treated with caution rather than fear and panic. They read, speak, and write common and draconic. Some famous dragonborn include Arkan the Cruel, Joe Manganelio's red-scaled Oathbreaker Paladin character, and Tiberius Stormwind, also red-scaled, and a sorcerer played by Orion Akaba in the first Critical Role series. Stat Block Dragonborn's size is medium. Their speed is 30 feet. Their alignment tends towards extremes, most are good, but followers of Tiamat will be evil. Their breath weapon does 2d6 damage and 1d6 on a save with a DC of 8 plus the constitution modifier plus proficiency bonus. It's a dexterity save against black, blue, brass, bronze, copper, gold and red ancestries which comprise acid, lightning and fire and a constitution save against silver, green and white ancestries which are cold or poison. Damage increases to 3d6 at level 6, 4d6 at 11, and 5d6 at level 16. It applies in a 5 foot by 30 foot line for black, blue, brass, bronze and copper ancestries, or a 15 foot cone for gold, green, red, silver and white ancestries. Ability score increases are strength plus 2 and charisma plus 1. Advantageous classes that can make use of the ability score increases Barbarian for strength, Bard for charisma, Fighter for strength, Paladin for strength and charisma, Sorcerer for charisma, and Warlock for charisma. Paladin being the standout for min-maxers. For more information on Dragonborn, see the show notes for sourcebook page numbers. But now, it's on to our first discussion of class. You so classy. Barbarian. You know nothing of passion. When your rage can sunder mountains, you may speak to me of passion. Barbarians are fury made flesh. They live for battle, laugh in the face of danger or overwhelming odds, and their rage is akin to a force of nature, like a tempest. They invariably fight to the death, their incessant rage fueling their conquests, whether one on one or versus an army. They can draw their rage from various sources, such as fierce animal spirits they commune with, or else simply a burning anger at a world that has been nothing but pain to them. 
It is this rage that not only gives focus to their fire, but also bestows upon them enhanced reflexes, amazing resilience, and strength beyond measure. Barbarians see civilization as a diluting of their primal spirit. Rather than settling, they embrace their feral natures, seeking strength and freedom, unfettered by walls, preferring to roam the tundra or grasslands of their homelands under an open sky, heeding the call of the wilds. They are never more alive than when in the midst of battle, delighting in the chaos of the melee, relying on instinct to guide their hefty blows rather than field tactics. Their tendency to rush headlong into the fray can make them both an asset and a liability to an adventuring party. While it's true they can act as a tank for the less robust members of the party, dealing out huge damage to foes and soaking up hits, they care little for plans and strategies. Played to type, they could be quite annoying for other party members who perhaps want to avoid a particular skirmish or try stealth as a tactic. If you're playing as a barbarian, try to exercise a little impulse control. Your character can act annoyed at having to temper their instincts and still be true to character, but your group will thank you for not pulling the entire camp of orcs before they've had a chance to whittle down their numbers by other means. Remember, just because you can rage and ignore a sword thrust like it was a mosquito bite doesn't mean the rest of your party can. If you rush in every time and end up with a total party kill, expect a few sour glances from your teammates. Barbarians aren't necessarily stupid, although can often be played that way due to intelligence being a dump stat for them so approach encounters with some thought. Even if you decide that your best course is to create a distraction by rushing the enemy's main gate solo, still wait for whatever signal your party has worked out before doing so. I know not of fear or sorrow, only bloodlust and rage. One of the main mechanics for the barbarian is rage. On your turn, you can enter a rage as a bonus action. If you're not wearing heavy armour, its effects are advantage on strength checks and strength saving throws. When attacking with a melee weapon that uses strength, you get bonus damage that scales as you level up. Check the rage damage column of the barbarian table for more. Resistance to bludgeoning, piercing and slashing damage. Rage lasts one minute, which is equal to 10 rounds of combat. It can end early if you are knocked unconscious, or if your turn ends and you haven't attacked a hostile creature or taken damage since your last turn, so always be pummeling. You can also choose to end your rage as a bonus action. You get a limited number of rages between long rests. Again, consult the Barbarian Table's rages column to find out how many per level. You also get an unarmoured defence, so if not wearing armour, your AC is 10 plus your dexterity modifier and your constitution modifier so be sure to put a decent roll into decks. This can also be used with a shield, which can bump your AC quite nicely. Other barbarian advantages at later levels include extra attacks, a reckless attack from level 2, which involves nominating it on the first attack of your turn, and giving you advantage on melee attack rolls using strength during the turn, but also gives opponents advantage against you until your next turn. From level 2 you also get Danger Sense, giving you advantage on dexterity saving throws against effects you can see, including spells and traps, provided you aren't blinded, deafened or incapacitated. From 3rd level you choose a path, from 
Berserker or Totem Warrior from the Player's Handbook, or the Path of the Ancestral Guardian, Storm Herald or Zealot from Xanathar's Guide to Everything, or the Path of the Battle Rager, and additional Totem Warrior options in the Sword Coast's Adventurer's Guide. Later advantages include fast movement, feral instincts which give you advantage on initiative rolls and makes you unable to be surprised provided you enter rage on your turn before doing anything else, brutal critical which add additional dice to your critical damage rolls, relentless rage which can bring you back from 0 HP and more. Famous barbarians include Grog from Critical Role and Conan. Stat block. As a barbarian, your main stats are strength and constitution, which are also your saving throws. Your hit points at level 1 are 12 plus your constitution modifier, and then 1d12 plus your constitution modifier per level. Your hit dice are 1d12 per level. Your armor is light, medium, or shields. Your weapons are simple and martial, but you get no tools. For skills, you choose two from animal handling, athletics, intimidation, nature, perception, and survival. Equipment, you get a great axe or any martial melee weapon. You get two hand axes or any simple weapon, an explorer's pack, and four javelins. If you like flying into rages and slicing your way through hordes of enemies in a fervent bloodlust, laughing maniacally as you go, Barbarian is the class for you. Background check. Urchin. The urchin background means your character grew up as a homeless orphan, learning to survive and provide for yourself on the heartless city streets. You needed to keep a constant watch over your meagre belongings, save some other poor wretch seal it from you. You slept on rooftops and in alleyways, exposed to the chill of the night air, rains and snows. Often you took ill due to this exposure, and with no money for medicine, you relied solely on your constitution to pull you through. You've survived by a combination of your wits, strength and speed. As an urchin, you start your adventuring career with enough money to last a 10-day living modestly, with a pouch containing 10 gold pieces, and have expert knowledge of the city you grew up in, using shortcuts unknown to most to travel across it in twice the speed. And you can also take party members with you. The urchin background gives you proficiencies in sleight of hand and stealth, presumably as a result of having to steal food to survive, and you get tool proficiencies for thieves' tools and disguise kits. You start with a small knife, a pet mouse, a token to remember your parents by, and a set of common clothes. The urchin background could be useful for rogues with sleight of hand and thieves' tools. Personally, I think it should come with a plus one to constitution as well, but there we are. Role-playing an urchin would mean remembering your humble beginnings, perhaps hoarding food even when it's plentiful, or taking particular care of your footwear to ensure it lasts. You may be reluctant to share things like food and loot, or simply take extra pride in your possessions. Monster Menagerie For our first Monster Menagerie segment, we're going to look at the Aaron A. Aronson of D&D Monsters. The Aracocra. The Aracocra have been a playable race since 1987, first appearing in The Forgotten Temple of Tharazdan by Gary Gygax in 1981 
based in the Greyhawk setting. The Arakokra are from Aqua in the elemental plane of air where they can glide for days on end. But they have homelands in Mazdaka, the Star Mounts, the Stormhorns, the Cloven Mountains, the Mist Cliffs, and Koliar. They roost atop high mountains in the material plane, especially near portals to the plane of air. They average about 5 feet tall, 90 pounds or 41 kilograms, and are feathered with scaled skin and hollow bones. They average a 20-foot wingspan and their wings are mostly used for gliding on thermals and are not ideal for fast flapping. Their main racial bonuses are flight and superior vision and hearing. Facially, they generally look like parrots and eagles, but have also been depicted in art with owl faces. Aracocra recognise each other by plumage rather than facial features. Their plumage tends towards red, orange and yellow hues in males, often with a red crest on their heads, and brown and grey tones in females. Their faces generally include grey-black or yellow beaks and black eyes. Because they don't rely on faces for identification, they can be easily tricked by humanoids changing their clothing or hairstyle. Their speech includes noises and tones including clicks, trills and whistles instead of facial expressions, leading to misunderstandings with creatures who don't know the tones and they struggle with facial expressions as a form of communication. The noises also make their names hard to pronounce for anyone not versed in the Arakokra language and they often use easier to pronounce short versions when dealing with other races. Males often fly into fits of rage when they perceive a slight or wrong against them, which can make them tricky to deal with. The Arakokra love freedom and hate being away from the sky, so not great dungeoneers. But they will also stay in an area for years if a threat of elemental evil is detected, so they have a strong sense of duty and honour. They are also notorious flirts. They hate griffins and gargoyles, the elemental plane of earth, temples of elemental evil, and evil elementals, particularly those of the earth plane. They have no concept of political borders, which makes sense because they're from the plane of air, and don't keep livestock. They only use things they can wear or carry. They have no concept of property ownership either. They often come into conflict with farmers for stealing livestock because they don't understand that it is the property of the farmer thinking it fair game. They believe in using what is necessary and casting anything else to the wind for others to use. The Arakokra see little value in gems, gold and precious metals, but have paid adventurers in gems for quests, so possibly understand that others do see value in such items. They craft items from twine, feathers and other materials, using all their limbs and their beaks. They have a matriarchal democratic government with seven-year runs, but are an insular society and keep mostly to themselves. Amongst themselves they are social though, and find being away from the flock or nest troubling. Those Arakokra who choose to stay away for a long time are seen as mentally ill. They prefer to sleep on roofs altogether and find other ways such as single rooms odd. They worship Sirenita, a patron deity able to change the direction of the wind, Akadi, elven goddess, queen of the air, and Erdrifania, elven goddess of the Seldarine. As a kind of background quest, the Arakokra are searching for the seven shards, 
pieces of the Rod of Law scattered across the multiverse after it shattered during a battle, to be reassembled into the Rod of Seven Parts. Stat plot. Arakokra have a challenge rating of one quarter and are worth 50 XP. They have an AC of 12 and 13 or 3d8 hit points. They have a walking speed of 20 feet and a flying speed of 50 feet. They have a perception of plus 5 and a passive perception of 15. The languages they can speak, read and write are Arakokra, Auron and Common. Their alignment is generally neutral good. They can fight with javelins with a 5 foot melee reach or 30 120 feet ranged, a plus 4 to hit and 1d6 plus 2 damage. They also fight with ranged weapons. They have talons with a plus 4 to hit, a 5 foot reach and 1d4 plus 2 slashing damage and they have a dive attack that adds 1d6 damage if they dive at least 30 feet and use a melee attack. They fly high into the air to escape enemies and can summon air elementals. Five Arakokra within 30 feet of each other perform a dance, using their actions and movement over three turns, during which they must not break concentration. They summon the elemental within 60 feet of them in an unoccupied space. The elemental is friendly to them and obeys commands. It lasts an hour or until all summoners are dead or any summoner dismisses it as a bonus action. They can't summon again until after a short rest. Any Arakokra within five feet of the elemental can return to the plane of air with it when it returns. Law Academy The Spell Plague The Spell Plague was a time when magic either ceased to function or else became so volatile that mages were unable to control it and either died as a result or were driven mad. Most magic users lost their abilities during this time. Another effect of the Spell Plague was that Toril, the world containing Faerun and the Forgotten Realms, had some crossover with its twin world, Abir. As I mentioned earlier in the Dragonborn race section, a portion of Tamanchabar, the Dragonborn nation from Abir, was transported to Toril and fell in the Faerun nation of Untha. In the chronology of D&D, the Spell Plague happened after 3.5 to set up 4th edition with new plot lines. The Spell Plague happened after the Time of Troubles, when the Overgod Eo cast almost all of the gods out of the Astral Realm to walk the Mortal Realm. Mistra, the goddess of magic and the weave, regained a pendant that she had hidden much of her power in, in the Mortal Realm. She created a portal back to the Astral Realm to end her exile prematurely. The god Helm, left to guard the passage to the Astral Realm by Eo, blocked her way and a battle ensued. Helm opened his visor and Mistra saw her doom, which Helm then provided. Shortly after, Midnight ascended to godhood and claimed the name Mistra. She was not to hold the title for long, as in 1385 DR, Cyric, the god of murder, killed her as part of a plan by Shah, who hated Mistra for siding with Saloon against her during the creation of the universe. Without a goddess of magic to guide it, the weave tore itself apart wildly, causing the spell plague. Shah wanted to gain control of the weave, but was unable to, and also lost control of the shadow weave. The spell plague caused the astral plane to fly apart, becoming the astral sea. 
Various domains of gods merged, split apart or were destroyed, including Mistra's realm, Dwemerhart. On Toril, the spell plague manifested as a storm of blue fire that killed whatever it touched, beginning in the Meher jungles. This fire laid waste to areas around Halrua, due to wild magical effects and affected areas as far as Sespec, the Golden Plains and the Nagalands. The blue fire also affected portals and planar gates, which helped it to spread across Toril, even to other continents. Many thousands of magic users died, and the surfaces of Toril and Abir were changed forever. The god Savras died, and Azuth fell into the Nine Hells where Asmodeus fused with him and became a god. Siric, who had killed Mistra, was imprisoned for eternity in the Supreme Throne. The World Tree was destroyed, and the other planes were either destroyed or reshaped, creating the Astral Dominions. Paths to the Feywild were reopened due to the Feywild being pulled back toward Toril. Some areas of land moved like the sea. Others ripped free of the firmament and drifted into the sky, becoming earth motes. Some areas were drowned underwater, pulled under, or suffering from the tsunamis caused by the shifts. People who got close to the Plaguelands could end up spell-scarred, which could sometimes leave a deformity on the creature and granted access to arcane abilities to those who could master their spell-scar. It's not easy to overstate the wide-ranging effects of the spell-plague, which lasted up to ten years, from shifts in the astral plane through to magic not working. This event is one of the largest reshapings of the D&D universe since its beginnings, both literal and in an in-game sense. The Infamous In this section, I'll be introducing you to a famous character or NPC from D&D. And since I sign off with May Timora Bless Your Endeavours, I thought I'd do my first The Infamous section on her. Firstly, I learned that the correct pronunciation isn't Timora, but Timora. Timora is the bright-faced goddess of fortune, as described in the Sword Coast's Adventurer's Guide. Watching over gamblers, risk-takers, fortune hunters, travellers, and anyone who lives by their wits and luck. Because adventurers are pretty much professional risk-takers, many of them, along with wandering bards, traders, and others, offer up thanks to her. She also counts among her followers nobles, farmhands, ne'er-do-wells, and many in between. Timora is friendly, playful, and graceful, but is only in charge of good luck, so don't pray to her to ward off bad luck, only to encourage good. To ward off bad luck, you should pray to Bashaba, Timora's immortal enemy and evil twin. Both were formed when the goddess of the moon, Selun, split the original goddess of both fortune and misfortune, Taiki, after she became corrupted by a rose created by Moanda, the god of corruption and decay. One way of divining the future is to toss a coin to a stranger, typically a beggar, and ask if it's heads. If so, the coin is left with the beggar as a payment for Timora's favour. If not, the stranger can choose to keep it, accepting the bad luck with it, or return it. Priests and temples to Timora are rare, as she deals directly with her disciples, but shrines are more commonplace, including those found at gambling parlours, and sometimes these end up becoming temples. Her main place of worship is at the Assembly of the Faithful at the Lady's House in the town of Arabel in Cormir, 
where she stayed during the time of troubles. Favoured sayings are, Place yourself in the hands of fate and trust to your own luck. Chase your unique goals and the lady aids the chase. One should be bold, for to be bold is to live. It might be wise to offer up a small prayer to Timora at your next session, or to charge into battle using the cry, Fortune favours the bold! Who knows, she may see fit to bless your roles. And that's it for today's episode. Thanks very much for listening. If you'd like to get in touch, I'd love to hear your thoughts. You can email me at icastpod at gmail.com or find me on Twitter or Instagram with the username at icastpod. I create all the content you see in here on the show and social media, except for some of the sound effects which come from Sirenscape, because great games require great sounds. Check the show notes for the link. If you'd like to help support the show, there are ways to do that. Firstly, subscribe to the show. Secondly, leave us a review on iTunes if you're a user. Reviews there really help the show get heard by new fans. Lastly, tell anybody you know who's into D&D about the show and ask them to give it a listen. Thanks. Until next time, friends, may Timora bless your endeavours. 